0: Hi, hey everyone. This episode of Dev Interrupted is special. It features a panel of talented engineering leaders who joined us at our Interact Conference. Their goal? To help us understand what it means to lead a team through difficult times. We hope you find today's conversation as thoughtful and compelling as we did. The team here at Linear B applied some of what we learned from these amazing leaders to our own teams. We hope you can do the same. When times are tough, engineering leaders need as much help as they can get. Linear B helps dev teams continuously improve by providing correlated data, context, and automated workflows that help streamline code delivery and improve developer experience. Learn more at linearb.io and check out our free tool, GitStream. GitStream is helping developers everywhere merge their code faster by revolutionizing the pull request review process. Every pull request is different. It's time we start treating them that way. Download GitStream for free and learn more at gitstream.cn. Now, on to today's episode. Welcome to Interact in our leading and times panel. I'm your panel moderator, Connor Bronson, co-host of the Dev Interrupted podcast. It's no secret that this year has been difficult for many companies. The news has been filled with stories about a shifting macroeconomic climate, hiring freezes, layoffs some places, and difficult times make great leaders. It's easy to be a leader when times are good. If growth is always going up and to the right, it goes a long way towards covering up any shortcomings. I know it covers up mine sometimes, but all companies will be tested eventually, just as all leaders will be. And that's what this panel is here to talk about, the leadership principles that help guide an organization no matter what else is going on in the world. So to help us stay on course, it's my pleasure to introduce the following exceptional leaders. With us today, we have Carolyn Vo. She is a partner and head of engineering at Oliver Wyman. Carolyn, welcome. And then we also are all joined by Michael Stockey. He's the VP of Platform at CircleCI. Michael, incredible to have you here. Thanks. And then Lewis Tuff, last but not least, is the VP of Engineering at Blockchain.com. Lewis, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Let's start by getting to know you all a little bit better, make sure our audience can uh, understand the context of who you are. Lewis, I want to start with you. You're the VP of Engineering at Blockchain.com.
1: How is the current economic climate affecting you? Sure. Great question. This has definitely been an exceptional year for different macro and micro impacts and events uh, on all businesses. I think for us in the cryptocurrency industry, we've been building and preparing for this for a a long time. In the last kind of decade, there's been a lot of challenging volatility in the markets and industry, whether it's kind of regulators or countries or Um, Big Entity is coming out saying that it's doomed to fail, and I think now they've reported many, many times over the last few years that Bitcoin is dead, and it continues to bounce back. So I think for us, we've been kind of preparing to diversify our technology stack, our products, and also set expectations with the team that this is not going to be a smooth ride, and rarely kind of when you're building new technology and pushing boundaries, is it kind of a linear path, right, you're always going to take a more complex um, direction to get there. And so really it's about focusing on core product, focusing on the value that you're creating for your users, understanding what it is that provides utility, and making sure the team is kind of really bought into the long term mission. That makes sense. And I think it's something that Michael can probably speak to as
0: well. Uh, Michael, you before you became the VP of Platform Circle CI, I know you were a puppet for eight years. You've been on that forefront of building new technology and innovating. What have those experiences done to shape your leadership style uh, today? Well,
2: I mean, I think a lot. I look at a lot of it about who are the customers you're selling into and what are the problems that they're having? You know, it always starts with if you understand what your customer is trying to accomplish, then you can probably help them achieve their goals. And that's gonna, you know, really kind of soften the blow for whatever's happening for your company or help it or, you know, whatever, I guess, if if you remain customer oriented, I think you're going to do the best. Now, the issue is, you know, you have to figure out is it am I helping existing customers? Am I trying to attain new ones? Am I helping, you know, a, a certain vertical more than another? So there's a lot of nuance in there. But I think, you know, as I look back at the last 10 years of working in developer tools in one way or another. Efficiency doesn't go out of style. And so, you know, people want to be more efficient. They want to get, they want to be more productive with what they have. And so you have to kind of focus on how can you show that to your customers and how can you really double down on that? I think, you know, when, when the economic times aren't so certain, you have to kind of say, okay, we're going to focus and we're going to peel back on maybe some of the bigger bets that we were going to take or some of you know, we're not going to do every bet or every little small bet. We have to stay a little more focused and it kind of comes back to, you know, you can do everything, but you can't do it can do anything, but you can't do everything. So
1: I, th- I think just to echo that, I think that's a great point that really what these environments do is act as a forcing function to focus on the truly highest impact endeavors. And so like, in like a very flush bull market, where venture capitalists and public markets, and everything is going up it will take a lot of weird and wonderful bets and experiments. And that also breeds inefficiency because there's no need to optimize. And so, yeah, for us, that's been like a big effort over the last few months, is to really just kind of, yeah, go back the layers of complexity and understand, okay, what is the most high impact projects we could be working on? And where are the inefficiencies? And how do we better deploy every dollar within the business? Whether that's in the team, whether that's a new technology like Circle CI to like optimize some of our developer experience, or whether that's actually just cutting off kind of inefficiencies that were left to breed.
0: And Carolyn, I would love to get your perspective on this as well. You know, you're a partner at Oliver Wyman, you kind of have a unique perspective on this panel. Uh, You came up through the engineering org there and and have grown your role. What kind of has that progression, your experience uh, taught you about this, this same topic?
3: So that the nature of the work that we do in consulting, right, you've got, you sometimes can have like the feeling of feast or famine when there's uncertain economic times because your work, your your workloads and the type of work you get from clients' needs and demands fluctuates based on what the economic trends are looking like, right? And so it's, you you basically have to just, go with the flow. It's just interesting, right? Because if you normally see a lot of like advisory and bill of demand and economic, normal standard economic times, okay, great. And then when things are facing like an economic downturn, companies are tightening their belts and they're being much, much, much more judicious about what they do with their spend and their budget. Um, and as a result, you'll see the nature of the work and the needs and skills just kind of shift. Um, and I feel like I've been able to still be relevant. We'll call it um, as an engineer in a management consulting firm because I do both oversight of the delivery stuff as and the build stuff, as well as the advisory stuff. I don't know. It's just I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but it's just a, it's just it's such a strange, different business model from a typical product engineering or services or platform kind of of, of place, right?
0: No, I, I like that we're getting these different perspectives because uh, I think it's a really important thing to point out. This can be different for every business, right? Like, okay, sure, you may be needing to focus on core products as as Michael and Louis are alluding to, but there are service models that have nuances to them. And I think understanding that and understanding that not every person in the audience has the exact same approach and you need to kind of adapt it for, for your business and your team is really important. Uh, and I'll say one of the things that I know all of you deal with, to be successful in this is communication with your teams. Uh, it becomes extra important in these, as we call them inc- uncertain times, to make sure your team understands where you're going. So I kinda wanna talk about the philosophies each of you take on communication with your team uh, and with potential clients uh, in this environment. Michael, you said that when you hear engineers complain about too many meetings, what you've heard from them is often that they hate collaboration. Why is that? And and
2: can you unpack that for us? I mean, it's just a classic engineering complaint, right? Oh, I'm in too many meetings, too many meetings. And I'm like, well, what are you doing in those meetings? Are they effective? What are they about? And, you know, it's like, well, I have this thing with my, my team where we have to do, you know, a backlog grooming, or we have to figure out, you know, the architecture of this thing that we're trying to build. And I'm like, well, that doesn't sound like a boring meeting. Like that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing as engineers. And so often I'll challenge that and say, Hey, you know, a meeting is not this evil thing that's on your calendar it's it's actually a scheduled work item or it's time to make sure that everybody is focused on the thing they're trying to get accomplished and so you know, say I hate meetings I'm like, eh, I hate collaborating with teammates it's like well that's that's not really I don't think anybody really means that it's 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 just a very easy, nebulous block to get mad at. I'm mad at this block on my calendar or I'm mad that I don't have free time all day. well, if you have free time all day, how do you use it so sometimes scheduling that time is is really effective and you know but it's the classic engineering complaint, I guess. And so I, I usually have pithy one-liners to dismiss a lot of those because I, I just, I find that they haven't changed in 15 years and I don't think they're going to change in the next 15 years is probably where I'd go with that. But, you know, kind of back to your, your, your point about communication, you know, when are you communicating up and down or how fast or when I, I will say that I have a strong philosophy that I'm going to communicate when I need to, and you can consume that when you need to. Um, and so if, if I'd 11 PM my time and I'm just in flow and I'm doing a bunch of stuff where I'm sending out a bunch of comms. That's great. If you don't read it till the next day, that's usually fine. I mean, that's one of the glories of remote work and asynchronous communication tools is hopefully, uh, you know, you can figure out your own alerting settings on Slack or whatever else the medium is that you're talking about. So that if you don't want to be alerted at 11 PM or, you know, two in the morning for you or whatever, then don't. And hopefully you can manage all that. I'm, I'm not going to sit there and try and figure out, Let's see, they're in Ireland. If I text them now, it's going to be at this time of day for that. Like, I, I just, I'm like, you know, everybody should manage their own incoming traffic because even if you're in a different time zone, I have no idea what hours you actually want to work. And I don't really think I to care most of the time or want to care. So, so um, but I do think, yeah, that, you know, being very deliberate in the communication, making sure you are sending out a lot of things. And I particularly like to do things in writing when I can because I can always refer back to it. So I have
3: a quick comment to make on the too many meetings things because, of course, engineers loan has downtime. And I get it that when you disrupt that, it is disruptive when you're in the zone and all of a sudden you're like, okay, I've got now, f- like not just four hours of meetings, I've got like peppered in like a random pocket of 30 minutes in between. It's, it's very ineffective. So I think there's opportunities to streamline it so that the value of those meetings is really socialized, but also the efficiency effectiveness of the breakdown and organization of meetings is also good because it's hard for me to, to do anything effective in like a 15-minute pocket for the next meeting. You just can't, you no. just really can't do anything at all. And that context switching, I think, is also what bothers a lot of engineers. I know it definitely bothers me, right? Because when you have to go through five different topics and then coming back to what you're trying to be heads down on, it's just like, oh my God. And that's, that's I think, one of the reasons why engineers just hate the, the idea of too many meetings. But like you said, when you ask and you challenge, you go, well, what are those meetings about? You find out a lot of times it's like, yes, it, there is a three-hour backlog grooming session, but you kind of need to talk through things with the product owners and product managers to make sure that you're not doing random stuff, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that I work closely with my direct reports and kind of engineering managers, engineering leaders of different seniorities is actually not just to think in isolation of, scheduled time, but also think about your unscheduled time. And actually, you should be scheduling all of your time actually in it, 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 to, to use it effectively to kind of Michael's earlier point, if you have free time, that's unbounded unscheduled, how are you effectively using it? Well, to do that, you need to actually think through what is the objective? What am I trying to achieve? And what am I kind of highest impact tasks any one time? And so I tell my team and get them to tell their teams that you should be scheduling Free blocks where you can have kind of deep focused work and be totally uh relaxed in the flow without getting kind of pulled into random color switching and feel free to use that time and just dis- to save your notifications and actually be completely in the zone so i think that's also kind of an important flip side of this coin it's like yeah okay people can take your time but you need to take the power back which is like actually booking your own slots and making sure that there's complaints around, hey, too many meetings or meetings in the evening. The first question I asked them was like, did you tell the person that you were unavailable at that time? And often the answer is no. It's like, well, yeah, put in a block of time in that evening to say, hey, I'm busy. I need to do some personal errand, or I need to focus on some work that has a tight deadline, or I want to just focus on like debugging an issue. If you do that, put that context in there. Most people are reasonable, and I like to kind of lead with that. Most people are fair and reasonable, and if you make that assumption. Mostly, it rings true, and and so I think yeah, a lot of times is giving giving engineering leaders and tenable leaders, especially those early on in their careers, the tools which they can then apply to be be more effective and efficient. I think on the exigorous point, that's a great a, a great example. Like one of the things that we've done at com um, effectively is actually experiment with different mediums. I think to Michael's point, like I definitely am aligned that. It's better to over-communicate and then have the receiver or consumer decide how they want to filter the noise. I think
0: that's a, that's a great way to think it through. Um, I, I guess I'm curious in relation to the uncertain time side of this. So, you know, times might be tough. How do you over-communicate to make sure that your teams uh, have the information they need to feel comfortable and kind of go beyond simple like project communication on a day-to-day basis, but also... I would say keep morale up and make sure folks know that you're you're moving in the right direction.
2: Not sure who you were asking, but I'll step in. Uh, uh, so, yeah. I'll do. Yeah. So I mean, I, I look at this a couple different ways. Is one is no matter where you're at and what business you've been in, times are always uncertain. Um, and there are distinct degrees of uncertainty. It's like, okay, maybe my business is not doing great, but the overall market's doing great, or maybe I'm trying to find product market fit when other people aren't, or I'm um, trying to navigate entering a new market, you know, a, a new country, and so that's uncertain how that's going to work, or you know, what like so there's always a degree of uncertainty to, to to handle, and this you deal with that the same way you would in a macroeconomic climate that's uncertain, and it's okay. Well, let's let's talk about the things we know to be true. Let's let's really make sure that we we have a a stable foundation to talk about, and that we're being transparent about it. And whether that's uh, runway for the company, or whether it's uh, you know incoming deals, or you know, are you hitting your growth target numbers, or are you hitting your revenue numbers, or um, you know, and you don't necessarily have to use absolute numbers because you don't necessarily want to share everything because you don't need everybody to be an insider in terms of all that stuff. But you can say, Hey, we're on plan. We're not on plan. We'd be planned by the X percent. we missed planned by X percent or, you know, whatever. I just think a lot of open knowledge communication is there. And some people that makes them feel really good. Other people could care less about actually your overall business goals and your revenue numbers. And they're just like, do I still get to write code that looks like this? Cause this is really fun. And I enjoy this. How much time do I get to do this? And so you have to kind of, figure out what motivates each of those different individuals during uncertain times. Or you can say, Hey, we're going to cut these four projects. Um, and people are like, Hey, do I still have a job? And you have to answer, be able to answer those things right away. You're like, yes, you do. Or no, you don't. Or yes, but you're going to be reallocated over to these other, you know, main priorities or, or, or whatever. And I just think, you know, change is pretty consistent. And so we have to, we have to figure out how we deal with that and manage it across, uh, you know, a large set of humans that are, that are doing great work for us. And it's how do you talk about that change and how do you make them as comfortable with it as possible? But also remember that I, as a leader, it's, it's kind of easy to look at a big picture and say, well, this is how it looks perfectly when I draw it all out. But then you have to think about, well, who are the, all the personalities that are involved and how do they interact together? And, you know, maintain that level of empathy for every single person there. I often try and sit, okay, if I was sitting there looking at, looking up at, at this org chart or looking up at this change that we're about to make. And I was this engineer, you know, a level two engineer who's been out of school for maybe three years. What do I think about this? And I think, wow, that VP is a jackass, doesn't know shit. And then I'm like, well, maybe I should do something differently. And, or at least be able to talk about this more intelligently. So that that person has the context of my care with me. Yeah. I, I, what I'm hearing kind of is like that empathy
0: for the engineer and making sure that their developer experience is strong. I know it's a, a big thing for CircleCI. I think it's an important step for leaders, uh, particularly in this kind of hybrid async environments we're moving into and part of that beyond to keep the communication that helps level set is building a culture that uh, your engineering teams will respond to and and is right for you and your team. Uh, one of the most interesting things I've heard recently on, on that cultural front, it's actually from you, Carolyn. Uh, you were on a Dev Interrupted podcast episode with us and you talked about jokingly referring to yourself as the junior probationary intern. Uh, why is it so important for you to maintain that kind of informality?
3: Well, From my experiences, I don't know, Michael, yours and Lewis's, but as you get more senior in your careers, I'm not sure you guys have found it where people feel this artificial distance because you're now much more senior and you're less approachable. And you're just like, no, I'm still the same person, but it doesn't matter what you say. It's like, you're a VP, you're whatever, you're CTO, CIO. It's just like, it's scary for people. And it's just artificial distance. And so I just I throw in that goofy thing just to make sure people reminded, like, it's just a title, guys. I'm still Carolyn. You know, I could be called Potato and, and I'd be the same person. Um, in fact, I might want to change my handle now in Slack from Junior Probationary Intern to Potato and see what people can have it. <laughs> I like it. But yeah, I feel like it's just now people are just not getting distracted about the goofy stuff and remembering, like, you're here to help them. If you're really executing on that servant uh, leader kind of model, who cares what your title is? You're just here, like, I tell people, my like, guys, I'm literally here to help make things happen for you and empower you. Like, it doesn't matter what I'm called.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think from what you said, Carolyn, and uh, what Michael was mentioning earlier, I think context is key here. And actually the number of times I've been caught at where I've just booked a random meeting because I want to talk to someone urgently and they've been absolutely freaked out because why is a, the VP booking a meeting with a random engineer They just think the worst, right? And so like having an agenda to Karen's point earlier is super important. Providing context for every meeting is super important or even just every interaction. Why are you reaching out to some random engineer? And hopefully you do that often enough that it doesn't become this kind of freak event, but you always get kind of new engineers joining that maybe don't know the culture yet and have had a different experience in a previous environment where, yeah, they do have that distance. And that often is the case in kind of more uh, well-structured corporate environments. And so they're moving into kind of a startup scale up world, and they suddenly get access to all the execs, whether they're in engineering or not. That's kind of a new concept and a, and a new um, paradigm. And so yeah, I think Absolutely. Just also, we have to be conscious of the fact like how we kind of set up those um, boundaries and, and, and how we break down some of those boundaries is, is super important. So yeah, I love that idea of just like, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, you're looking around
3: that rat head rat. with like the new people because they don't know you, and I know that some new people have definitely told me like, yeah, I was told to meet you, and you know, you're, you were scary. I'm like, why? And they're like, because your title, you you head engineering, you're a partner. I'm like, oh my god, I mean, it's just it's crazy, right? I'm like, so the new people were like scared. I'm like, doesn't to be scared about. It's that's why that's why I feel like that thing is so fun because I know some people definitely have said, oh my god, I love your new people. It was like, oh my god, I love your your handle on Slack. Cause it's so <laughs> it's clear from yeah. that it just conveys already. You can Great, go, yes. and talk to one more weird, serious, creepy, you know, senior person. I'm, I might be creepy. I don't know. I can't, I can't make that not on
2: that. I mean, I think, I think I we're fired all fired to know. be creepy. <laughs> you can't just dismiss the, the automatic power dynamic that comes with having the title, though. And I think, like, as much as I try and distill it or minimize it, it's still there. And I think that that's something yeah. that. I try and keep in mind and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because that was never me when I was, I I will say I had very little respect for authority when I was at IC. um, So it didn't actually mean much to me, but it doesn't mean it doesn't mean a bunch to other people. Um, And so you just try and be very relatable and also try and understand that no matter how relatable you are or how much, you know, I I will say I I go through a lot of effort to make sure there's fun with the teams that I have and that that usually helps with relations and helps with setting context and helps with people being like, this guy's a fool or whatever. But like, you know, you're really encouraged to have, have a good time, but still, there's still a power to there at some point, and you know, and, and I really, I never want to dismiss that because I don't think I realized it until I was, well, like at least well into like a senior director level when I realized, oh, this is real. This isn't just something that I've read about in a book because I never, under, I never understood it. Um, so it's real for some people, certainly no matter how much you don't want it to be.
3: Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree. I don't think it's meant to be eliminate, you know, that artificial distance entirely. You just can't, like you said, some people always see those titles, you know, always be there, but you know, like you said earlier, you tailor your dynamic to each individual based on what, what they're like, their personalities, their styles and stuff like that. So
0: Michael, you brought up something that I think is a good point and, and clearly is part of your culture which is making sure you build in sun. And I, I very much hear that from you, Carolyn. And it sounds like I'm hearing that from you as well, Lewis. How are you each doing that? Like, what? okay, great. Your title is junior preparationary intern or maybe potato now, Carolyn. But uh, Michael, what are you doing to build the sun? I'm, I'm curious on, you know, maybe there's some actual takeaways folks in the
2: audience. I do so many things a day to be fun that I'm, I'm sure it's annoying to certain individuals. Um, but I just want to work, Michael. Dang it. <laughs> right. No, I, I've literally <laughs> had people that work for me be like, you realize you're just a distraction, right? And so, like, <laughs> it does happen. Um, but uh, I answer. yeah, I, I will say that I, I'm very active in Slack um, and I'm in many of the social channels that are not necessarily directly work-related. I'm probably one of the top posters in our memes channel. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always adding new emojis or you know throwing in random graphs of, like, here's how people are interacting on in these channels today. Um, I like to write a lot of little, like, you know data parsing things from slack or whatever um i've written songs with music videos to hype people like we have a hack week this week i literally wrote a song and had somebody else edit a video to it you know with like the A team chasing people around and stuff like that like we do all sorts of stuff to be fun and it's really hard when you're not in person and so you have to work you have to work like twice as hard to be fun not in person because fun doesn't always uh get conveyed properly over tools like you know zoom or slack when it's very easy to do if you're in person you know having a cup of coffee or a beer so um but I, I work pretty hard at it. Uh and also just at the start of a meeting, you know, hey, here's a fun thing that I learned today, or here's something, or you know, posting in the random channel, like something completely random or out of context. Just let people know that, you know, hey, you can shit post in my DMs too, it's not a problem. So
1: Lewis, what about you? Yeah, I, I guess I probably have a slightly different style to Michael. I I think that the way that I have kind of this energy Um, and enthusiasm into the work is actually giving people the space to experiment, push boundaries, and try new things. And so I'm not necessarily uh, setting up kind of social events. I did try that over lockdown, but um, found kind of forced fun is no fun. And so what didn't never really got that uh, right, but I think actually just said, giving people, empowering leaders, empowering engineers, they come to me and say, hey, Lewis, that's a great idea. I think we can like build a firm extension to, to display balances for users. But like, this is this is amazing. Why don't you spend like a day a week for next month uh, alongside your scheduled work and tasks and, and build a prototype, right? And then actually giving them the space to do that, I think is, is how they feel kind of technically stimulated, they feel empowered. And they're able to contribute above and beyond uh, their initial role. I think that's the kind of how, how I think about this and, and the way I've been approached this is like, and it goes back to the earlier point about intrinsic motivators, right? You need to understand, like, why are people here? What's their intrinsic and extrinsic motivators? And how do you best curate an environment and context where they're going to be successful, they're going to feel fulfilled, and they're going to be engaged and I think, yeah, in, in some cases, that may be doing kind of fun, wacky social events. Like in other cases, it's just giving them the time to, like, learn a new language, try a new library or framework, or just, like, build a new utility.
3: Yeah, I think I'm in the middle of both of y'all, because everyone defines fun in such a different way. Um, and sometimes it'll be the people that go, I want the time to just tinker and get some Kaizen time and just play with Russ, you know? That's fun for them versus some other people like, I want to go rage at a happy hour, you know, for the next four hours on Friday. And so it's just, it's different. You got to cater to different groups. And so understanding what, how different people and the different groups to find fun in engineering is important. Like sometimes it's little micro gestures of fun. Like Michael, you do fun things on Slack or whatever. I did that too. I'll help in like a, would you rather random question for people? Like, would you rather swim through an ocean of corpses, or would you rather swim through an ocean of raw sewage? You know, it's like just random stuff like that, right? It's, I see Michael's like, I was saying it's like, it's random. Other people are like,
2: this is a terrible you know? game.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not fun for you, Michael, clearly, clearly. But it's not fun for other people. Um, and also, it's, yeah, it's fun to find out, to, to say like, okay, I want to have fun experimenting with something or going to a conference that's fun for them, you know, so just understanding what everyone, different strokes for different folks and just empowering them and making it happen for them, I think is important. Definitely. No one stops shop.
2: Totally. And I, and I think one thing that I, I think it was Lewis that brought up, you know, a lot about experimentation and that's fun for certain folks, but it's also extremely rewarding. And I think that's one of the things that I really look at is if you're having fun, you're going to be a better engineer. You're going to enjoy your job more. You're going to be a better employee. If you're not an engineering, probably if you're having fun. Um, and so, you know, part of that is, do you have the freedom to experiment? Do you have the freedom to fail. Can you recover from that? You know, what's the culture like around that? Because, yeah, you know, it's not fun if you're allowed to experiment all day, but you're, then if your experiments don't pan out, it's, it's a problem, you know, it's, yeah. and so sometimes those things are, there's a there's a cultural norm behind that that isn't necessarily like anchored in fun. It's more on how do you handle experimentation or how do you handle um, you know learning things when success isn't the only thing that happens off the other side. So yeah, because um, motivations think, are different, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, and I do think that when you have you know kind of tie, kind of come back to what we talked about earlier when you have might be more economic on certain times, you may have less tolerance for that. Okay, can we fail fast or can we fail slowly or can we learn or how do we do all that and so that's something that you really want to talk about as a leader with your team is what's our tolerance right now for failure or learning through failure or learning through things that don't quite pan out or finding seven ways not to do something before we find the eighth way that works or, you know, whatever. And I think that that's, that's both like, you can kind of tie fun and the economic uncertain times theme right back together at the same time with, with that type of, you know, alignment on freedom for experimentation.
3: Yeah.
0: Would you call that like a value for transparency, Michael?
2: Maybe I I, 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 to me, I think it's all about the context of like what, where you're at for real. And again, I find that if you just tell the truth, you don't have to remember a lot of stories. And so it could be, you know, Hey, here's where we're at. Here's what our tolerance is for this type of risk, or, you know, we're not willing to take a bet right now. That's longer than three weeks. And so you, if you can figure this out in three weeks, if this is going to work or not, that's amazing. And if you can't, it doesn't like, you know, and that's cool if you can do that. Um, and I've been at businesses where, one department had that, you know, that limit of, okay, it's, we're not gonna take a bet bigger than two or three weeks. And another one was like, we have six months because our conditions are different in this business unit or whatever. And that's totally fine too. And so you just need to kind of relay, here's where we're at, here's the parameters and here's why. And then if people have questions, you can talk them through it and hopefully they all understand. And if they don't, then maybe your understanding can be changed because they have different contexts than you have or you align some way. But I think, um... I guess it is transparency, but it's also just like making sure they shared context all the way through.
0: Lewis, I see you nodding your head, it seems like this is something that resonates with you.
1: Totally. I, I think that I definitely described kind of leading with radical candor. And I think that that is, is really important as a leader. I think there's a, a fallacy that leaders need to absorb and filter all bad news and all kind of uh, context on the business direction. Uh, dang. Whereas actually, I do the opposite. I think you need to actually filter that down and and give people the understanding of like why are we making hard decisions, like why are we changing direction, why are we killing a project, why are we kind of pulling back? Maybe letting people go. Like it's really important they have the context behind it and not just in the moment. Actually, they've had the co- context accumulated over time, and so it doesn't come as a shock, right? Like you shouldn't get to a performance review. And people are shocked and surprised at the results because you should have been giving them feedback regularly and iteratively. And they should have learned over a period of time what's working, what's not, and and what the expectations are most crucially of, of you as a leader, but also of the business. And so I think, yeah, pushing this down, being transparent, leading radical candor, and in the occasions where things get hard, being quick to actually provide that context. So maybe you've had to let someone go for performance reasons. I will immediately tell the team, we've let someone go for various reasons. Otherwise you just kind of breed this ambiguity and speculation. And often the perception of what's happened becomes a lot worse than actually the real reality, which is like, they just didn't meet the expectations that are wrong. We hired them to do X, they didn't deliver X. And so now they decide to move on and it's a mutually agreed um, process. This brings up a
0: topic, uh, uh that I think is hard for a lot of early stage leaders you know, people maybe take their first team leader, engineering management role, and that communication of tough decisions, uh, whether that's a layoff or critical feedback can be really challenging for people to kind of learn how to do, uh, Carolyn, I'd love to get your perspective about how you think about that, like tough communications and how you share that or, or what you think Maybe new leaders should do to learn to improve on that.
3: I mean, personally, I'm still refining my own techniques. I am definitely don't have it mastered, right? Because it depends on what the tough stuff is that you have to socialize. You have to think about how do you frame it. You have to think about the audience because the bad news or the tough news isn't always just only going sometimes to engineers. know, it's also maybe sometimes some of their friends or some of your friends in different groups. I just feel like it's really about... <sighs> balancing between like your your emotions because I, I think giving a dry message of in a cyborg kind of way is not great um but i also think you don't have to be like the crying ceo and go that extreme you know what i mean i just think that it's just really about just keep it really as much as you can about the information but also leave that door open so people can can talk to you in one-on-ones offline if they have more things you know to just discuss in more detail and in private detail but yeah it's just tough i I don't know i don't there's no i have no secret sauce to how do you how do you best share tough news with groups it's stick to the facts as much as you can and frame it in a way that doesn't come up as incendiary or like inflammatory or like blame-based i think that
0: blame-based point is is a really good one to latch onto here and talk a little more about Um, one of the really crucial points of being a leader that I've talked to all of you about visually is is that ownership of responsibility, you know, as a leader, you know, the book kind of stops with you, you in the end have to be be responsible for the decisions that are being made by you and your team. And that could be scary and tough for you sometimes. Um, are there decisions where you particularly have to think through this? Absolutely. But Michael, what I'm curious about is how should leaders avoid blaming others? For example, uh, an employee asks for a raise, but their boss might say, ah, I want to pay you more, but oh, you know, like the finance won't let me.
2: Yeah, those are uh, my pet peeve, probably it would be like a, a quick way to say it. I, I'm a big fan of owning the message that you have to deliver, and I need you to own it authentically. Um Kind of to go back to how do you deliver bad news? I was thinking about how I think about this. Uh, I go back to my own values and principles a lot. And values and principles were things that I thought were platitudes hanging on a wall for a long time, long before I really started to dig into them as a leader. And like, what do they really mean for me? But like, I want everybody to like me. And that is second only to, I want to come off as authentic. If you're not going to like me, I at least want you to believe me and think that I'm coming from a natural place and a true place. And so I work very hard to do that. And so if you have to deliver bad news, be authentic about it. But I think if the authenticity is, um, you know, some jerk over in finance, won't let me pay you more. Like that's not really, I mean, you can say that, but that doesn't help. But now it's, now it's okay. You've created a barrier of us versus them. And if there shouldn't be us versus them, it should be, we, you know, we're all working together to solve the same problems for our customers in the end. And so it could be, Hey, um, I agree or or we want to pay you more or here's what I can do for you or here's what we're doing to help you grow or here's what we're helping you do maybe to get that promotion because maybe that allows you to get the pay that you want or, you know, there's a lot of discussion in there that you can have that isn't just the, well, somebody else said no, but I fought for you because like whenever you do that, you're basically eating your own organization from within and so I don't want people to do that and I, I mean... One of the biggest factors for me, like in my engineering leadership, is if you can own a message, you are way more likely to get promoted and move up than if you can't. Um, That is just black and white the way that I look at that one. Uh, There's not a lot of nuance there. If you can't own a message, you're probably capped at the level you're at, at best. (laughs) So um, that's just something I look at. And I I guess I learned that a lot more during tough times than I do during easy times. It's probably another way to say that. Lewis,
0: I know you've said like sometimes making the best decisions means getting out of people's way, which to me seems to kind of correlate with this, where it's like, okay, you have to own the message and just let what happens happens in some ways, uh, and be willing to accept that I guess the consequences of that. How are you like empowering your
1: teams while dealing with this? Yeah, I think you can always Put in a safety net right for your team members and for your direct reports and for the engineering team i think you have to let them make decisions own them and stand by them in that process in both successes and failures and so for me this this really kind of translates to i may not agree with every decision that is made by direct reports but i will stand by and advocate for them all the same. Because ultimately I know that we as a company or we as a team will benefit from the process and not just the outcome. right? And I think that's kind of a really important distinction is like, it'd be very easy for me to go, no, I've seen this before. Like, let's just skip to the right way or, or the way that I think it has the highest probability of success, but they don't learn through the process. The team doesn't learn through the process. And you've actually taken that opportunity away from them. So I think that's kind of an important uh, lesson that I learned and I continue to kind of catch myself and and stop from kind of jumping in at times where you have this uh, knee-jerk response to want to fix or solve. And as engineers, we often believe there is a solution for every problem. Um, And I think sometimes you have to let it play out and, and that's the best path forward, actually.
2: Yeah, I mean, humans, particularly engineers, are amazing pattern recognition machines and they also kind of look for patterns even when they might not be there and even if you've been through the situation two or three times before the variable set is different and so even though you think it looks a whole lot like something you saw before the inputs might be slightly different which could lead to slightly different outcomes and out and outputs and so you can't always just rely on i saw this before here's what the enemy looks like um and so you, you know with a new group of people or a new a new set of scenarios you just want to have that play out at times and and walk people through it or learn through it and Again, if you don't agree with it, can you still commit to it and do it and and, and look at the other? And
1: and don't tell everybody that you didn't agree. Yeah, exactly. And actually, to your point about people wanting to progress in their careers, if they learn that lesson early on, that you you don't have to agree to give it your whole and best effort to make it a success. right? And the the individuals that I've seen that are very opinionated and very stale in their thinking, they, they have one dimensional thinking. Are the ones that, that ultimately will stop themselves from progressing?
0: This brings up a good point. you know we want to enable our teams to progress in their careers. It's important for retention, frankly, it's important for hiring and, and getting talent to people to want to come work for you. Uh, how are you thinking about growing your team members as individuals within their careers? Uh, Carol, if you maybe want to start off.
3: Yeah, so I think the definition of how someone progresses is going to be again different for person because some people want to not necessarily get to that next level, right? They, some people are very happy seeing where they're at, but they want to progress in a different way. They want to progress in a different uh, area of focus. You know, maybe they want to progress and go from like full stack. They want to go only focus on the front end, or maybe they want to progress in terms of like being. Um, strong contributor and instead of being in the AWS, they want to do it in Azure versus how they're wanting to progress and be a manager or leader or whatever, right? I think it's just it always boils down to tailor, tailor things for individual um, and just figure out how you can support them. I know it sounds so easy. It's really you have to be really diligent about understanding, identifying what I call the what's next story for each engineer. Like what's next for you? And that's how they define how they progress. And then you just keep track of that and you measure how they're doing, how you're supporting them so they can so they can actually progress. Otherwise, I think you have this loose interpretation that leads to challenges, especially when it comes to like end reviews, like in their minds, they may have thought they progressed, and your known definition that they did not progress, et cetera. So getting alignment on what it means to progress with that what's next story, I think, is just so important and how do you activate it.
0: Lewis, I've I've heard you talk about that as doubling down on your current team. Uh, how does that look to you?
1: Yeah, so I, I agree with Caroline that I think that you really need to think about who are the the folks in your organization that are embodying and driving towards the company values, the key principles and being kind of exemplary in their approach and behavior and progression, and then ultimately connect them with folks that want to progress in their career. Because I think having a reference example, having a mentor, having a coach, both internally and externally is hugely valuable. And both of them benefit from that relationship. And I think in an asynchronous world where everyone is remote, it's much harder for individuals to find these these individuals within the company. And so one of our roles is to actually do that pattern matching, right? And, and matchmaking and, and make sure that, oh, wow, you, you want to grow to be a manager of managers and in multiple teams. Well, this person has just done that over the last year and been highly effective at it. And these are some of the key attributes that are doing well. Why don't you spend some time understanding that process? And, and here's a few things you start asking about, right? To boost up that conversation. And so like, the number one thing that I'd always recommend, um, aspiring leaders to do is, is seek out a mentor. And if they're unable to themselves, I, I will help them with that process because I've had mentors and continue to have mentors throughout my whole career. And they really have been hugely impactful in my decision making, my career progression, and just in my network. And so it's a valuable tool. It's something that doesn't require much to kind of get started, It takes a lot to kind of keep, build that relationship, but it doesn't get, take a lot to get started. And it identifies the key people in the, in the organization that you should be connecting with. You should understand how they operate effectively. And so that's kind of what I what I mean by doubling down. It's like identify those key individuals, make sure those that are aspiring regress know who they are connect with them and seek that mentorship, whether it's internally within the organization, if you're large enough or externally in smaller teams. Michael, I see you nodding your head.
0: Seems like that. Aligns with your thought.
2: Problem. Yeah, I don't have much to add there. That was pretty great. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> great. How about this? Uh, what if we flip that? So, okay, this is all about retaining and enabling the folks who are in your organization. How are you all seeking to
2: acquire new top talent uh, when you do have the opportunity to hire? I mean, I like to jump in on interesting problems. Uh, you know, if, if people are interested in the problems that you're trying to solve, they they can get pretty excited about it. I mean, for us, we run at a pretty high scale. Um, you know, we're not Google and Facebook. We have to reinvent protocols, but we are not able to use uh, off-the-shelf tools like in default settings. We have to tune them heavily and tweak them and be deeply experts at them. And even then, we're still learning, you know, about weird configuration options that if you have this set in, this set at the same time, and you, you know, run more than 300,000 transactions in the last 10 minutes, then this can happen. And it's like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Um, and so there's just a lot of problems that are really fun to solve. And so if you're looking to attract somebody, you can say, Hey, this is an interesting technical problem. Here's a space we can go pretty deep in. Um, other people want advancement. And so you can say, well, we're a, a fast growing company. So if there's a thing that you want to be doing two years from now, um, how would you feel about maybe having the opportunity to do that in seven months versus two years from now? Because sometimes those things pop up and we take chances on people or whatever. And it, I mean, you have so many different options for how you sell an opportunity to somebody. And I, I usually try and look at what I think is motivating them as I, as I get a feeling for them through the interviewing conversation or through, you know, even, even reason, reading the resume or if they have external you know, blog links or whatever, you know, depending on the the level of somebody that you're trying to bring in. But for, for engineers, it's usually the fun technical problems for leaders. It's the fun organizational problems that come with a growing and dynamic business. And, um, you know, it is, uh, I guess you do tailor it to individuals, but it's also, um, you end up with kind of common patterns in a lot of those cases, I guess is what I would say. I, I, I go back to the same well a lot.
0: <laughs> uh, Lewis or Carolyn, do you have any thoughts on that? It's
1: okay to say no for the record. No,
3: I do, but I didn't know Lewis would...
1: Carolyn, go for it Harry. No,
3: you seem like you're ready. I can see you're, 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 you're formulating the words in your head. Go for it.
1: <laughs> well, I, look, hiring is hard. And so, yeah, this is something I think about a lot day in, day, in, day out, and uh, and when I'm sleeping. I think that there is, you have to get creative to stand out. If you're not going to be paying the most in the market, like the VANGs, or, or or you don't have like super liquid equity, like the VANGs, there's like, you have to really focus on like, what is the profile of energy you need? And then, like Michael already says, healer or the interview process. Tailor the JD to that individual and seek them out in areas or communities where they operate. Right, like if you're trying to hire someone to build an NFT product for you, you probably want to go and seek them out in a Discord channel around the latest NFT collection that has been launched. Right, and so going to the communities where they are supplies for any kind of technology or, or product. I think is is really important, and then through the interview process, it needs to be high energy. Needs to be the right people on the interview loop, and you need to be constantly iterating on it. Like. The last thing you want is to burn out your internal team doing like 10 interviews a week. And they just have like super low energy. They're just looking forward to the end of the interview process. You need to switch them up. You need to like look at the stats because yeah, sometimes you see that people are failing on the same person and actually it's your fault because you made them do 10 interviews a week for the last four weeks and and they're just sick of it. And so like, I think you have to kind of keep adapting and be creative and, look at different ways that you can tap in to, to this talent, and then be very clear on what the sell is, like, what, what is it that is exciting about your opportunity? As Michael, we're operating a huge scale, we're using technology, we have to build in-house and in the grind up, Like these are kind of interesting, distinguishing factors that really kind of allow you to stand out. I think that that's really what I kind of focus on and what we focus on as a team. Is like pulling out those key attributes, pulling out those key differentiation factors, and making sure they're at the forefront of the minds of everyone that's interviewing.
3: Yeah, for me, oh, I just it, it's such it's still a competitive market, right? And you have to get super creative about and be deliberate. Again, I'll use that word again and again. How you can do your reach based on how you want to grow. So, for example, one of my big areas of focuses, I would love to get folks who are diverse. I would love to get more women engineers. I would love to get more black engineers. And you've got to really tailor what you have in the JDs. You got to tailor how you convey your culture in social platforms like Instagram or, or your website or LinkedIn. You just got to go to the right place. Like you said, like you want to find NFT folks, go to the right crowds and meetups, et cetera, where those folks are really convening, right? I tell people all the time, like, don't go to a don't be a vegan and go to a, a barbecue restaurant and then complain that there's a lot of stuff for you. you no, know it's a barbecue place. What did you expect? Like change up. If you want to go with vegan food, go to look for you know where what the vegan options are. So it's it's such a an on, like ongoing constant thing. Like you said, it's in the back of your mind, Lewis. It's in the back of my all the time. Like how do you reach the types and profiles of engineers that you want to grow your your organization with? And it goes. Like, and, and Michael Stamps, he's talking about, like, yes, some engineers love to, to solve interesting complex problems. You can convey that in your JD, but you can also put yourself out there again, convey the culture of innovation and, and complex problem solving with things like your blog posts or your, or things like contributions in podcasts, et cetera, right? There's so many different ways to reach your different audiences. There's such thing as a one stop shop. You have to constantly iterate on the languages of those JDs as well as where you try to increase your pipeline of candidates since there's, there's great success. We've seen partnering up with um, a recruiting company that, that specializes in finding diverse candidates. For example, we've seen already huge success. Uh, with that company alone, I've already seen more female and black candidates than I've ever seen from other companies that we've used. So again, be deliberate about who you partner with as well.
1: Carolyn, I'd love to know who they are. Please send them afterwards.
3: <laughs> happy to, happy to.
0: I definitely hear a lot of similarities in how you're all thinking about this. Um, problem solving, uh, making sure that you're identifying the areas to approach. I guess one one final question on this. Um, do you think right now, given the uncertainty in the economic climate, it's a time to kind of sit back and and be less aggressive on hiring or are you on the opposite end saying okay now's an opportunity to attract
2: top talent and retain them it's never the wrong time to hire the right person i guess it's probably a really simple way to, to summarize but there's more talent available right now than there has been at least for the last couple of years because of other companies having you know layoffs or restructuring or or whatever um There's probably less people jumping just because they think they can because they're probably a little more interested in stability and so you have to kind of balance those two forces but if you can find the right people and and get them in it's just it's always the right time to get the right people and so um really work hard on making sure that they're they're really great and i know one of the things that we've been refocusing on is the effectiveness of the interview interview process and like can we raise the bar a little bit on that can we make it a little bit better can we refine it you know when you're not trying to hire uh 30 engineers a month you can get better at it by slowing down, and so um, you know this is a, it's a good time for a lot of companies to kind of reevaluate all those processes. And like you know, you have probably a lot of notes and things that went right and wrong in the last several so- hires you did. How do you make those truer? How do you make them more effective? And I think uh, you know, for me, it, there's there's a couple things. Is is it's it's about retaining the people that you really want. How do you keep them? How do you make sure you they know and feel appreciated? And it's not always just monetary. Sometimes it's other types of recognition or uh, new opportunity, responsibility, whatever. Uh, are you dealing with people that aren't keeping up very well? Are you having the tough conversations? Are you raising the bar on where that floor is? Um, you know, are you are you being very clear about expectations and are people meeting them and, or not? Um, and, you know, it's kind of, are you being more efficient with your dollars all the way around through through the hiring process and, and the retain, employee retainment process? But um,
1: it's never the wrong time to hire the right person, I guess is what I'll, what I'll summarize with. This is actually a conversation I, I have often with, Engineering managers and leaders is like, you should never stop hiring because, like, the stop start process is actually hugely detrimental. And so you should just continue to build your network, continue to talk to candidates. Some of the best candidates I've hired, I spoke to them like 18 months prior, right? And started off that process. And then over that time, we checked in, the company evolved, the org evolved, and then the right role came up when they were super excited to jump ship. So I think like, investing early, especially if you're new to engineering leadership and starting those conversations, because it'll pay off dividends in the future. And so like, even if your company says, hey, hiring free six months, you should continue to have those conversations because when it opens back up, you only want to jump on that and have that network primed and ready to go. I love it. A
3: very proactive versus a reactive kind of stance. I love that. I feel like companies are very short-sighted and don't go, oh, no, everything paused. And definitely, and then it, they don't send the message from the top saying, however, keep, keep those that look promising warm, right? And, and stay- Yeah, exactly. so well, I up. The other thing I like to do is, even though they're hiring freezes sometimes, if I meet someone or someone is submitting a resume and they just look and sound amazing, I will put that file up and say, hey, if we lose this person, we're getting this is why. This is how they can contribute to the org. Here's what we can have them do, like day one, you know what I mean? I will make that fight. Say, if you lose this person, that's insane, and you all look crazy. So, you know, I, I, you know, everything always has wiggle room, I mean, as you found out. Yeah. <laughs> that nothing is ever set in stone. But yeah, I love like yeah, relationships warm I, until things open up.
2: Is a good default yeah I also think you know if you're trying to to move mountains you know to get somebody in the door keep in mind that those same people already work for you and make sure you're moving those mountains for the ones that are there already too mm-hmm. make sure that they're getting oh, so, uh appreciated and rewarded and um it's very easy to look at the next new shiny thing and not always <laughs> <laughs> you've always collected already collected or whatever and i I want to be like i I think employee retention is super difficult and I, I I work really hard on it I feel like we've made a lot of good improvements over the years, but uh you know, there's no perfect formula there. So, I uh, whenever I think about, okay, I'm willing to go up to the extra mile for this new person. What have I done for the people that are here? That's always mm-hmm. the, the thing that I, have, I I try and balance that in my head constantly.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the, the generalized yeah. principle that like I take away from what Caroline and my boss said is that there's always exceptions to rules, whether it's on retention or it's on acquiring new folks. Like you should never just be bogged down by the current constraints if you are passionate enough about it, you should push through those boundaries. I think that's a great point to end on.
0: Uh, it's, it's good advice in general. And I have to say, this has been a really incredible conversation. Uh, Michael, Lewis, Carolyn, I, I really appreciate all of you bringing all these insights, the pithy one-liners, your knowledge and experiences to us today. And I know the audience has really enjoyed this as well. Uh, I hope everyone in chat's having a great time and looking forward to following up with folks. I also want to give a big thank you to our sponsors and the company is responsible for Interact Linear B. We help teams like yours continuously improve by providing correlated data, context, and automated workflows that help streamline code delivery and improve the developer experience. Just like we've talked a lot about on this panel, it's crucial in these uncertain times that you are making sure that your teams, your developers have a positive experience with the work they're doing and are not being blocked by terrible workflows or uh, not given the opportunities to advance that they need. So, Linear B is free for dev teams. Check it out at linearb.io. I'm sure someone will have a link in the chat right now. And thank you all again for coming on the panel. Really appreciate it.